Inuit traditional beliefs tell of a three-tiered world. The bottom layer is the underworld, where the evil spirits reside. The middle world is the earth, where we mortals face all the beauty, pain, trials, and exaltations that make up our complicated existence. While on Earth, Inuit try as best they can to respect everything, great and small, that makes up the world around them. Above all else, Inuit respect life in all its forms. The top layer, or the upper world, is the place where souls go when they have left one earthly body to await placement in another. In the upper world, among the stars, lives the goddess Pana, sometimes known as the woman in the sky. Pana is the deity who cares for these souls who have left their bodies, sometimes in a most unnatural way. She greets them as they rise from the earth and embraces them, taking them to rest and ready themselves to be born again. Pana descends from her world to ours through holes in the heavens. Occasionally, the radiance of the upper world will escape through these holes, and when it does, the northern sky is filled with dancing ribbons of its iridescent light. One of the best places to see Pana's otherworldly glow is on a long stretch of dark highway in British Columbia, Canada. Scientists will tell you that it is simply easier to see the northern lights when one is in a place that is untouched by the haze of artificial light. And maybe Highway 16 is simply that, remote and dark. Or maybe Highway 16 is a good place to catch a glimpse of Pana because she is so frequently called there to take another woman home. From 1970 until present day, 73 women and girls have gone missing or turned up dead on Canada's Highway 16, otherwise known as the Highway of Tears. A disproportionate number of these women and girls are indigenous. Most of their cases remain unsolved. Most of their faces remain unseen. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police assembled a task force in 2005 in the hopes of solving 18 of these cases. The name of the task force is E-Pana. 18 is not enough, but it's a start. We could not endeavor to tell all of their stories today, but in time we will tell more. Today, we will say their names. We will begin this journey of knowing and remember that as painful as it might be to hear, it is a million times more painful to actually live through. We know that this is not our grief. This is not our tragedy, and we will not pretend that it is, but it is vital that we recognize these women and girls who are no longer with us. Women and girls who were helpless because we as a society tied their hands and feet and pushed them into the dark. May the woman in the sky one day shed light on them all. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead.
Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. This week is uh, heavy, extremely heavy. Today, we are covering Canada's Highway of Tears, a case or rather 73 cases. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the most far-reaching totality. So every disappearance and murder covered in that time window, it's 73. That's so many. Way too many. Um, So this has been very heavily requested also, which is what I was getting to. I probably get a request for this every few months. And I think I kind of dragged my feet in covering it because I knew how hard it was going to be. And I was wrong. It was harder. (laughs) Yeah. Minus the, and, and adding the fact, sorry, that it's huge. There's so many women. But I know that it's important for us to talk about this anyway. So we're going to. And honestly, it's kind of hard to even shill for reviews this week, but I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> because without them, we can't tell important stories like this one. Mm-hmm. So you may or may not know that I spend most of my free time researching how I can most effectively advertise and create content for this podcast. Leslie knows I'm kind of obsessed. (laughs) So that we might be able to net enough listeners to go legit and do this for a living. Mm. Yeah, which is the dream for me. Leslie has short soaps. (laughs) She's a lady boss and it always looks great. She smells great. Life's good. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just over here hobbling along like a gremlin with computer-related neck problems and crow's feet that are rapidly cresting the barrier between charming over 30 person who laughs a lot and wizened old hag who might actually be a crow. <laughs> You're a little harsh. <laughs> Caca! <laughs> but lucky for me, you guys can help me bounce back to a place where I'm at least acceptable in front of an audience. At a distance. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> How, you might be asking your phone or car speakers right now? That's simple. With a little hydrating spritz of... Validation. Yes. Very nice, which you, dear fiends, can provide by simply heading on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the best and only way to move this podcast forward. And I know it might seem like such a trivial thing. Who reads reviews, right? Everyone. Everyone does. Everyone reads reviews. You take it for granted, but you definitely are like, what are other people saying before you get anything? Yep. But more importantly... Uh, Good ratings and reviews are important to Apple and Spotify, and the more of them they have, the more they will suggest us to others, because contrary to what you were told in school, everything in life really is just a popularity contest. It is, yeah. Also, by leaving a review, you will be giving yourself some validation because people will be reading them. That's true. They'll be saying, like, this smart person Mm -hmm. has good things to say. Yeah. I'm going to listen to them. And also, their name is really nice. Right, like Jolly Giant 62 slash B. I I want to meet that person. Yeah. What's attached to that handle? I I don't know. I hope they're very short. Yeah. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) That is much better. (laughs) Who knows where they are in this popularity contest? I feel like I'm Jettisian, aren't I? (laughs) Yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's fine. She's the coolest one anyway. Anyway, if you've already done that or are like in the witness protection program and therefore cannot leave a paper trail, you can also support us over on Patreon. You can use any name you want there. Mm -hmm. I don't care. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and there, for only a few dollars a month, you will gain access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, our whole catalog of minisodes and 30-minute horror movies, the chance to Zoom with us and other totally awesome and fun fiends, a gift in the mail from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. And if all of that is too much for you, you can simply follow us on the social media platforms you like best. We're on all of them, but especially Instagram, who is the reigning Regina George of social media platforms. I'm leaning into the Mean Girls thing right now. We are would-be dead pod everywhere. Like and share our content. Sharing is caring. Post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell the telemarketer who calls you next. Try and sell them something for a change. What's their name? Brenda. Brenda. Brenda really wants you to get an extended warranty on your car, but you're going to sell her a podcast instead. Yes, Brenda. <laughs> Brenda's a listener now. We love you, Brenda. <laughs> then your friends and Brenda can become fiends and we can all hang out together. See, it's that simple, right? It feels so easy. It does feel easy. I'm doing it right now. You are. <laughs> You're nailing it too. Signing in Jolly Giant. <gasps> I mean, uh, oh my God. <laughs> I was right. You're not tall. <laughs> uh, lastly, I think we've been talking about figuring out some more live shows in our future. Yeah. Yes. Um, and meetups, this will probably occur in like the summer and fall. So if you're part of a fun fiend fam, let us know where you're listening from and maybe we'll end up in a city near you. Mm. I want to travel. I know, me too. I got to go somewhere. Yeah. Let's go somewhere. Okay. Give us a reason. <laughs> we'll need to sleep on your couch, but don't worry. We're both very clean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Leslie will bring candles. It's good. Yeah. I I, I know where I can get some soap. <laughs> um. Anyway, I think that's all I have for this week. Leslie, is there anything you would like to add before we begin? Not at this time. All right, then. The witness has decided not to speak. Mm -hmm. Couldn't think of how to finish that sentence. <laughs> Sorry. All right, then. On with the show. The Highway of Tears is a 450-mile, 750 kilometers for everyone else in the world, I think. Mm-hmm stretch of Canada's Highway 16 that travels between Prince George and Prince Rupert, British Columbia. This stretch of highway is particularly remote in some places. Most of it is actually very remote and dark and forested. And the soil in these forests is like loose and sandy. So it's very easy to dig in. Mm. So it's okay. not, yeah, it's not really hard to believe that a few bodies have been dumped there or some people have gone missing. It looks like you know, when Netflix shows you a lot of trees from overhead to signify that there's a murder, we've said this before, trees equal murder. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what we're looking at here. Remote okay. highway, lots of trees. So not surprised a lot of people have gone missing, but 73 and all women and girls. Yeah, that's a large number for the same sex. Yeah, it's a large number in general. I know, four, I know 450 miles sounds like a lot of real estate. Mm-hmm. And I guess it is enough, but it's like an eight-hour drive, and this is just one highway. Right. It's the same highway. It's the same highway. You're on the same stretch of road for a long period of time, yes, but also, like, it's nuts that that many bodies or people were dis disappeared and their bodies were discovered on just that. Yes. I think that's way more than a coincidence on a conveniently dark road. Right, because it's not a... It, it's a, is it a quiet highway? Yeah, Fairly. I mean. 
Like, it's not like not 95. No, no, because right? people like, walk on it a lot. That's what the ha- mm-hmm. is happening here. So there's no way it's like constantly, insanely busy. And I've seen photos of it. It's remote. You're like mm-hmm. in the woods. It's more like, I'm trying to think of a, an equivalent near us. I guess it's kind of like being on 49 in the winter on a weekday at night. Mm-hmm. Dark, okay. lots of deer, not yeah. a lot of traffic. So, the phrase Highway of Tears was coined, by the way, during a vigil held in Terrace, British Columbia. Terrace is one of the towns that saw several of its girls and women lost to the highway, along Highway 16. Uh, and the vigil was held in 1998. The phrase was uttered by Florence Nazil, who was thinking of the victims' families crying over their loved ones. And she was right. There have been more than enough tears to flood that entire highway. And yes, Prince George and Prince Rupert are cities. <laughs> I know they sound like people. The first is named after Britain's King George III, yes, the one in Hamilton who got real crazy later in life. And the second was named after Prince Rupert of the Rhine, a rather eccentric fellow who shaped the political geography of modern Canada, founded the Hudson Bay Company, dipped a toe in the Atlantic slave trade, and faced several accusations of witchcraft because the people thought his dog, Boy, that's the dog's name. Boy. boy. Come here, boy. <laughs> I need a boy. <laughs> People thought boy could transform into a lady. Mm, okay. Like a human lady. They thought he could tell the future. He could catch bullets in his teeth, was impervious to injury, and maybe he could have been the devil himself. Mm. You can't make this shit up, and I can make up some pretty weird stuff. Prince George is a rather large, major northern city. And Prince Rupert is a small port city on Kayan Island. I think I may have pronounced that wrong. It's K-A-I-E-N. I would say Kayan. Okay. Which is near the Alaskan Panhandle handle, and has a population that is nearly 35% Métis and First Nations people. Now, considering how few indigenous people there are in general, 35% of the population is a considerable number. Currently, there are 18 actively related cases being explored along the so aptly named Highway of Tears. But we feel it is important to mention everyone that has been lost. I can't tell all their stories. I wish that I could, but I can't. Some of them don't even have a story. We really only know where they were found or where they were lost. But we need to say their names and you guys need to hear them. To the mainstream media, they were nothing more than a blip on the radar, if that. Most of them, I should say. A few made the news, but 73? hmm Even 18. I couldn't tell you all 18 stories before this. Right. And the tragedy that befell these women and girls only begot more tragedy in their wake. Imagine what it might be like to hear a name you know on this list. Some of you might. And for that, I am truly sorry. I'm not sorry that we said it. I'm sorry that more people haven't. Mm-hmm. So here we go. I'm just going to read their name, age, and whether they are missing or have been murdered. Tracy Clifton, age undetermined, missing. Helen Claire Frost, 18, missing. Jean Virginia Ginny Sampere, 18, missing. Monica Ignis, 14, murdered. Corinne Thomas, 21, murdered. Mary Jane Hill, 31, murdered. Jean Mary Kovacs, 36, murdered. Roswitha Fushbischler, 13, murdered. Nina Marie Joseph, 15, 
murdered. Doreen Jack, 26, missing. Alberta Gail Williams, 24, murdered. Cecilia Ann Nicole, 15, missing. Marnie Blanchard, 18, murdered. Kimberly Dumise, infant, murdered through an act of arson. Helga Roshan, 45, murdered through the same act of arson. Sherry Roshan, 26, also murdered in this act of arson. And Pauline Roshan, 19, the last murdered in this act of arson. Delphine Ann Camelia Nicole, 15, missing. Donna Mae Charlie, 22, murdered. Maureen Sullivan, age unknown, murdered. Teresa Humphrey, 38, murdered. Ramona Lisa Wilson, 16, murdered. Roxanne Thiara, 15, murdered. Alicia Leah Germain, 15, murdered. Sheila Faye Kinnequan, 25, murdered. Christine Kinnequan, 3, murdered. Lana Derrick, 19, missing. Hazel White, 12, murdered. Wendy Ann Twist Rat, 47, missing. Linda Geraldine LaFranc, 36, murdered. Amanda Jean Simpson, 4, murdered. Monica McKay, 18, murdered. Tracy Nadine Jack Wolf, 28, murdered. Savannah Hall, 3, murdered. Ada Elaine Brown, 39, cause of death unknown. Leah Marie Faulkner, 21, murdered. Nicole Hoare, 24, missing. Kayla Rose McKay, 13, murdered. Helena Jack, 71, murdered. Barbara Ann Joseph, 43, murdered. Margaret Newski, 89, missing. Melanie Dawn Brown, 31, murdered. Mary Madeline George, age unlisted, missing. Tamara Lynn Chipman, 22, missing. Candice Marie Kalmakoff, 20, murdered. Aaliyah Katharina Sarek Auger, 14, murdered. Stephanie Joy Donnelly, 16, murdered. Beverly Warbrick, age unknown, missing. Bonnie Marie Joseph, 32, missing. Brittany Geis, 19, murdered. Jill Stacy Stuchenko, 35, murdered. Emily Rose McLean, 16, cause of death unknown. Natasha Lynn Montgomery, 23, murdered. Cynthia Francis, 35, murdered. Linda Fryden, 56, murdered. Lauren Dawn Leslie, 15, murdered. Chastity Charlie, 17, murdered. Madison Geraldine Scott, 20, missing. Maria Practicante Rego, 47, murdered. Unknown body discovered in November of 2011. April Rose Johnson, 18 years old, murdered. Tara Leanne Williams, 43, murdered. Destiny Ray Tom, 21, murdered. Immaculate Mary Basil, 26, missing. Anita Florence Thorne, 
43, missing. Shirley Williams, 77, murdered. Roberta Marie Sims, 55, murdered. Francis Brown, 53, missing. Shauna Lee Sam, 39, murdered. Jessica Patrick, 18, murdered. Cynthia Martin, 50, missing. Lauren Campbell Fabian, 69, missing. Joy Morris, 62, murdered. Unknown woman found in her car dead. Jesse May Hayward Lines, 26, murdered. Crystal Haynes Chambers, 34, murdered. And Kristen Marion West, 36, murdered. And that is actually 77 names because some of them don't have a name mm-hmm. or um, I think they were like a little bit off the highway, but that's every single person. Wow. And if you feel like that took a long time, it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I apologize if I mispronounced any of these names. There are a lot. There are so many. And the chance that I accidentally typoed one of them or didn't read it totally correctly is pretty high. If you would like a correction listed on any of these women, please message us and I will say their name properly in our next episode. So let's just let that um, settle for a moment. This is pretty intense. Yeah. And there are a lot of uh, children on that list, a lot of teenage girls, a lot of little children and babies. Mm -hmm. So what the hell is happening? Well, I wish I could pin it down to one thing or even one maniacal killer, but I can't because it's not. A lot of things have come together in a perfect storm to create this asphalt killing field. And a lot of them are things that I was completely unaware of. And we should mention, if we haven't already, that most of those women are indigenous women. There's, there are, are Caucasian women too, but the vast majority of them are indigenous women. The truth of the matter is a lot of things we're going to talk about in this episode and future episodes about similar topics because this is just the opening to a huge can of worms. We'll have roots in residential schools. While this episode isn't about them, and we will do one about them, I felt it necessary to give you guys an overview of them before we began so that we can keep in mind what a lot to maybe all of the indigenous families of these girls and women had already been through. I would be remiss if I did not mention that I was informed and inspired this week by the work of the brilliant Canadian Cree journalist Connie Walker, whose podcast Missing and Murdered covers the death and disappearance of Alberta Walker in season one and the death and appearance of Cleopatra Nicotine Samanganis in season two. Connie's current podcast, Stolen, The Search for Germaine, covers the more recent missing and murdered indigenous woman case of Germaine Charlo. And this time, Connie makes the jump over to the United States, as Jermaine is one of Montana's many missing and murdered indigenous women. Montana has a problem all of its own. Mm -hmm. I will link all three podcasts in the show description and on all of our socials. Connie is a phenomenal journalist, and you should listen to all of her work as soon as you can. She provides a window into the generational trauma indigenous people endure to this day and the lasting damage it has done and continues to do. Connie's work really opened my eyes, and that's why I had to start on this topic now. I had no idea that there were entire generations of indigenous people 
who were ripped from their families as small children and forced to attend brutal prison-like institutions that masqueraded as schools during their formative years. I mean, like, we all kind of heard about the residential schools in Mm -hmm. recent news. I guess I just didn't realize that they were forced and mandatory. Right. Well, that's, we talked about that in the the Wendigo case. Mm -hmm. Um, And I went down a crazy rabbit hole there. And we were saving it for when we were going to do these ones. Yeah. But yeah, it was the, what I read was horrific and it was really sad. And it, I don't know, it makes, it makes me upset that I can't fix what has happened. You know, (laughs) yeah, I have a little overview of it, but it also makes me what made me the most upset. And I'll go into this in a minute is that like, where was this information? Why? Why am I 40 and I'm learning it now? Right. That is crazy to me because it's not just Canadian history. It is certainly American history as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Makes me so angry for those like me who don't really know. And that's okay because nobody is telling you. The Canadian Indian residential school system was a network of boarding schools created for the assimilation of the indigenous people of Canada to the mainstream white Christian Canadian culture. These schools were in the United States as well. There's one as close to us as Pennsylvania. Yeah. The network was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and administered by Christian churches. The school system was created to isolate indigenous children from the influence of their own native culture and religion in order to assimilate them. I believe the quotation widely used was, kill the Indian, save the child. Yep. Or something to that effect, which is so gross. Mm -hmm. From 1894 to 1947, attendance was mandatory. That doesn't mean the schools ended in 1947. They went all the way up until 1996 when the last one closed. Yeah. 1996, guys. 1996. That's such recent history. It is mind-blowing. You should be so angry about that. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? How was that still there? We Mm -hmm. knew better. Everyone knew better. That's what I find so insane. We, You know, you might be able to make an excuse. You, sh- you shouldn't, but you might be able to a very long time ago for saying, oh, people genuinely thought they were doing something helpful. I don't think they all did. But you know what? Some of them did. I don't think that the mentality changed. I think that the people who thought they were doing something helpful of taking this culture and trying to make them God's people were like, they still thought that's what they were doing. It's still that that's that kind of school that was still doing that. And they like to be in control. For sure. I just, so many people that were not diehard Christians were involved in it. So many people that were just Canadian government officials and stuff that were like, yeah, I mean, like these people don't know any better. So we should make them white people and they'll be much better in life. We knew better in 1996. Mm -hmm. We knew better. We knew better before then. I know, but I'm, I also feel like we don't because we're still seeing it. Yeah today. You're right. It's still frustrating. I guess in my head, I think we should have known better then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the information was there. We just chose to ignore it, I suppose. Right. Over the course of the system's more than um, 100-year existence, more than 150,000 children were placed in residential schools nationally. That's a lot of children. By the 1930s, about 30% of Indigenous children were believed to be attending residential schools if you can even call them schools. These places were not nice places. They're not what you imagine when you think of schools. 
The children were often ripped, screaming from their families. They arrived in these places where they were given a new name immediately or a number in some cases. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they didn't even get a name. One man said he was just number 64. That's who he was. They were given institutional clothing and immediate haircuts. They were forbidden from speaking their native language or practicing any of their cultural traditions. They could not go home or see their loved ones. They were berated and abused. The residential schools were a buzzing hive of white Christian pedophiles as well who preyed on innocent children who couldn't even speak their language to say no. The children were beaten and starved regularly. In fact, from 1948 to 1952, six Canadian residential schools conducted malnutrition experiments on the children, forcibly starving them, in some cases, to death. This experiment was also conducted on some adults. An estimated 1,300 people died, a thousand of which were children. Yeah. The number of school-related deaths remains unknown due to incomplete records. Obviously, they weren't writing all these things down. Estimates range from 3,200 to over 30,000. And I'm willing to bet that since the people doing the estimating are the same people who did the killing, we're way closer to the high end on that one. We really should have been tipped off to the sinister machinations of the people who ran these schools by the fact that they all had on-site cemeteries. Find me another school with a cemetery. I'll wait. Don't try to tell me this was common at boarding schools either, because I went to one of those and we don't bury people on the grounds, not even headmasters. <laughs> I mean, all of my schools had cemeteries. <laughs> really? Yes. Your elementary school had yeah. cemeteries? For the elementary school? Where did you go to school? <laughs> I guess it, I, I mean, I don't, it's definitely not what you were they saying. church schools? It was the church it, That's the church cemetery. Get out I of here. Know, but still. Every school I went to had a cemetery. That's where we, that's where recess was. Oh, God. Well, most (laughs) just straight up boarding schools, not like school that also Mm -hmm. has a church, they don't have an on-site cemetery. Mm -hmm. I guess they could say it was a church cemetery, but it wasn't for other members of the church. It was there just for kids that died at this school. Right, right. That's very different. I was going to (laughs) say, was that what happened to you? Because we have to go back and look at that school. (laughs) Where were you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Children in residential schools, however, went missing or died of unidentifiable illnesses or mysterious injuries all the time there. And their bodies were never accounted for in some cases. Just told their parents like, "Mm, they're dead. We can't, we don't know what happened to the rest of them. Such bullshit. I'm sorry. What? Yeah, we just buried them in a hole on the, in the back lot. To date, at least three Hidden mass grave sites for residential school children have been discovered in Canada. One of them housed more than 750 little bodies, which is when we all found out about this. Mm. Because 750 dead children is going to make the news. Yeah. Residential schools and the genocide that happened therein were funded under the Indian Act by what was then the Federal Department of the Interior in Canada. It was adopted in 1876 as an act to amend and consolidate the laws respecting Indians, which is laughable because it didn't respect any of them. It consolidated all previous laws, placing indigenous communities, land, and finances under federal control. So the government just gets everything. As explained by the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, the act, quote, made Indians wards of the state, unable to vote in provincial or federal elections or enter there enter any professions if they did not surrender their status 
and severely limited their freedom to participate in spiritual and cultural practices, which means that you had to register in order to be consider, considered, quote, an Indian. And if you were registered, you had, like, no rights. Right. So what they wanted you to do was basically say you weren't an Indian anymore. But most people didn't want to surrender their identities, even if they would lose their rights, and who can blame them? So the government created a lot of ways to just take it from them. Yep. Add to that fact that the Canadian government um, also ripping Native children from their homes and putting them into foster care until they could be adopted by white families. Now, in some cases, this happened because tons of families were on the poverty line and struggling. But in some, they just took the kids and didn't really have a great reason. Indigenous children in Canada have been overrepresented in the child welfare system for decades. Although they make up just 7.7% of the child population, 52.2% of children in foster care in Canada are Indigenous. That is insanely high. In 2018, the chairman of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Residential Schools, Senator Murray Sinclair, said, quote, the monster that was created in the residential schools moved into a new house, and that monster now lives in the child welfare system. Now, I'm pretty sure you're all aware of the dangers of the foster care system. Yes, there are a lot of foster parents that are actual saints and wonderful people who are in it to save children, but not all of them are. There are even more foster parents who don't want to be kind to children, especially not Native children. And these institutions didn't just create an astronomical amount of child victims. They also created generations of people who went through these schools and as a recourse did not know how to love or be loved. People who were taught that they were completely unlovable and that the only way that they could relate to others or that others would be expected to relate to them was through cruelty. These are people who suffered and were fundamentally changed by their suffering. But that's not even the extent of this reach, if it's reached, because these people were so unmoored by an event which made them unable to fully identify with their own culture, but also unable to identify with the culture they were for forced into, that they were also hardened because they had to be to survive. You're not going to get through that just still having healthy relationships with people and trusting anybody. Mm -hmm. They didn't know how to trust. Over 150,000 people were confused and angry and living in poverty without access to or probably desire for further education. Because who could possibly trust a school after that? Mm -hmm. You're not going to go back to school. Right. School was awful. And a lot of them weren't welcomed back to their tribes. Right. Because they were seen as um, traitors. Yeah. And... And then the white people saw them as Indians still. So they just had no identity. They had nowhere. They were just adrift, even if they were brought back to their families. And a lot of them did have family members who wanted to see them and they were unaware of that. Yeah. Because they were told they were unwanted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they, I mean, they wouldn't go back to people who didn't want them. Also, there's the, the element of they did, in a lot of cases, give them over to the schools willingly. Mm -hmm. Some kids were taken. Some kids were just turned in. Mm -hmm. How can you possibly trust a parent that gave you away to this? Right. You can't. And I'm not faulting their parents. They had no choice. Oh, yeah. They had no choice. And they were probably terrified and thought they might be doing the right thing. Because exactly. Because of any other consequences. Mm -hmm. These children also couldn't trust local authorities or the government. Mm -mm. They couldn't trust anyone. 
They were helpless in being kept safe, but their lives didn't stop. After residential schools ended, or their time in the residential school, I should say, they they kept going. They're still living. They then went on to have their own children and created their own fractured lives, lives that moved ever forward. And so these institutions also created generations of not just abused, but also abusers of addiction and desperation and a disproportionate amount of suicide. A generation of disconnected humans fighting through the pain and static without being able to see the other side. We just created a system of people who would then go on to destroy other people Mm -hmm. through no fault of their own whatsoever. We did that. Right. And I don't know about Canada, because I never went to school in Canada, but America's history books don't talk about any of this. Mm -mm. It's just, we, the colonists, landed here. Things got tense, we struggled, the Indians saved us, and we all ate turkey and high-fived. Then things got tense again, we gave them a bunch of smallpox and had a bunch of wars. Scalping was a big threat back then, and everybody was incredibly racist, but in like a colonial way, so we had to understand that they didn't know any better. Also, there was um, Pocahontas and Sacagawea. After that, we, the colonists who did not even go there, gave them reservations, high-fived one more time for good measure, and called it a day. Mm. That's what our books say. I mean, that's what the ones I read say. We gave them reservations, too. Oh, my God. I know. What sort of fuckery is that manner of thinking? Mm -hmm. I remember being a kid being like, oh, that's really nice. That's great. Yeah. And I'm so embarrassed by little me thinking that. But of course, like, that's what I was being taught in a classroom. Mm -hmm. Why would I not believe it? I know. (laughs) And now we just sound so angry to our kids when we talk about Thanksgiving. I know. We're just like unfiltered. I know. And they're like, what's happening? (laughs) I know. It's really, that's a very difficult. (laughs) I was like, guys, we're living through our trauma of not being taught the correct things. And we want you guys to know, but maybe we're we're all going through this like <laughs> period of revelation yeah. where we're like, we don't know what to tell you about anything because Columbus was terrible. Yeah. We will do an episode on Christopher Columbus. I have said that before. When Columbus Day comes back around, hold me to it. I'll do it. It's awful. I know. Anytime the kids have off on Columbus Day, so every year, do mm-hmm. you feel like you have to say, I still can't believe this is a holiday? Because I say that to my boys all the time. My kids are really young and they don't yeah. even really know what, I think schools have just ceased talking about it in some ways. Yeah. They teach them briefly who Christopher Columbus is, but they don't really go into it too far. Um, And I think we have dipped a toe into being like, you know, this day is trying to be rebranded is the wrong word because it sounds so like I'm talking about publicity. But in a way, I guess I am. It's it's trying to be revamped as Indigenous Persons Day, which is who we should be talking about and not. Christopher Columbus, mm-hmm. who did some things you would not believe. Yeah. But yes, we should try and make that switch happen. I wish history classes were better at, in, I mean, museums, history classes, mm-hmm. like, you know, places like Cape May, where we're from. I wish they were more willing to discuss the actual history of things, the yeah. good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, because that is our history and we yes. need to know it. And the only way we're ever going to learn from it is if we hear it full blown. Absolutely. So, yeah, like at our age now, we're learning all of this stuff that actually happened. And I'm furious for Thanksgiving about that. And, and we're like, oh, this isn't 
this doesn't feel right anymore. Well, it makes you, again, you don't trust your education system because you're just being indoctrinated yeah. into a method of thinking that you found out later is totally untrue, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is crazy to me. I'm furious that right. I didn't know the truth. <laughs> like, well, and and I'm furious because because we're wondering now, you know, okay, so the the schools, mm-hmm. how one of them was still going till 1996. Yes. And it's just this fact of like, we got rid of most of them and yeah. we did that. And now once we closed it down, we just stopped thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I'm left here, you know, decades later wondering like, okay, but what happened to those people? Yeah. And I didn't know that that happened then. Yeah. But now 20, 30 years later, 40 years later, you're trying to find out like, okay, where where are they? What happened? Yep. And that's the that's the frustrating part. We could have done something right away. Yep. And now it's so long past. It's so far gone. That I don't, I don't know who to talk to. And, you know, I, I know. <laughs> and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I always get the C wrong. Committee, commission, something. They, I mean, they're giving them money and formal apologies. But that doesn't make up, $10,000 isn't going to make up for a lifetime of this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to make up for a country that fundamentally is trying to destroy your culture and probably already destroyed a lot of your family. It's genocide. Mm -hmm. It's wild that we don't call it genocide and it's still happening. Right. That's so crazy to me. I mean, in school, we would make paper, like feather headdresses every November when we talked about the first Thanksgiving. Did you do that too? And had like little plays. And that's a topic that is so whitewashed and fabricated, it gives Tom Sawyer's fence a run for its money. But they're still kind of doing it. I know. I wish that's what it was because that seems like such a fun and wholesome time. But that's not what it was. And that's upsetting. It is upsetting. And maybe it could be. Maybe we could all get together again and actually do this the right way. (laughs) It would be great if we could. Yeah. But I'm not going to be like, and then they saved us. We kind of be like, we're very sorry. What can we give you? How about a really nice, friendly meal? I mean, that doesn't cover it either. I know it doesn't. But it's, yeah. I know. We just want something better. I, just, I think we all do. I want them to feel respected. I do too. And seen. Absolutely. I mean, we were just told in so many words that the struggle of indigenous Americans, and I don't know about Canada, you can let me know what they told you in school, but in America, we were told that their struggle was ancient history and everything was fine now. Mm-hmm. As soon as reservations they have been love that's, can, casinos. They love them. Yeah. They have reservations where they can do whatever they want. They're great. And it's not our fault that they um, hurt each other. P.S. They don't have like any funding from the government or opportunity to do any kind of jobs. And they have their own justice system and we don't help them. Bye. Right. Because they want that. Oh, yeah. That's what they want. I'm sure they want that. They want no access to any kind of advanced justice at all. I'm sure they wanted to be left alone, but also it's not really possible that way. Not like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I know. I mean, that, that's a tangent I knew we were going to go on. Yeah. And I think it's an important tangent that we had to go on before we get to this. Because otherwise, you can't see why it is such a problem. It just seems like a real, real weird random occurrence, which it isn't. It's just an insane level of bullshit that wasn't fine then and still isn't fine now. You can print something horrible in as many layers of self-righteous ink as you want, but the truth, like a bold-colored Sharpie, will always bleed through. Okay. That was awful, but necessary. So before we get to the actual highway murders, thought we might take a minute to breathe 
and celebrate the indigenous people that are being systematically destroyed in this episode by listening to a little bit of their folklore. I thought it might be nice to hear a couple of their stories. Um, And Leslie has a few of them to tell us. So why don't you enjoy Leslie's comforting voice for a few moments? (laughs) Leslie? I'll take it away. Okay. (laughs) Your massage therapist (laughs) voice. All right. So I picked two. So there are three main tribes in Canada. There's the First Nation tribes. The, mm-hmm. um, so like segments, segments populations, because yeah. there are a lot of First Nations tribes. We just use that yeah. term to mm-hmm. kind of blanket all of them. Yes. So there's, yeah. So there's the First Nations. Then there's uh, the Met- Metis. Connie Walker says Metis. Metis. I have no okay. idea which That's one fine. is. I've heard, I've heard it several ways, but I know that um, the ones that matter say, how does they say it? Metis. Metis. Okay. I, I just risk. That's fine because I've also heard it as as, um, as Medi as okay. well. So I would assume it's probably that. Yeah, sounds better. So Meti and uh, in Inuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the First Nation and Meti, who the Meti seems to be like a mix of First Nation and um, French and Scottish. They're people. a very interesting culture. Mm-hmm. So they, so some of them tend to go with their like closer to the First Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, while others go along more like the European route. So mm-hmm. there, it's just a blend and they have a lot of the same stories. So I chose a First Nations story because I thought that sure. that was a blend for both of them. Great. And then I also have a, a fun little short um, like mythology one for uh, the Inuits. We love. Okay. So the first one is from the First Nations. It's from the book Legends of the Iroquois by, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say his name wrong. But it's, I think it's his indigenous name. So Te, Tehain Torrens or Ray Fadden. Okay. It's called Song of the Hermit Thrush. Ooh. Long ago, the birds had no songs. Only man could sing. And every morning, man would greet the rising sun with a song. The birds, as they were flying by, would often stop and listen to the beautiful songs of man. In their hearts, they wished they too could sing. One day, the good spirit visited the earth. The good spirit walked over the earth, inspecting the various things that he had created. As he walked through the forest, he noticed that there was a great silence. Something seemed to be missing. As the good spirit pondered, the sun sank behind the western hills. From the direction of the river, where an Indian village was, there sounded the deep, rich tones of an Indian drum, followed by the sacred chanting of the sunset song. The good spirit listened. The song was pleasing to the ears of the good spirit. The good spirit looked around. He noticed that the birds were also listening to the singing. That is what is missing, said the good spirit. Birds should have songs. Aww. The next day, the good spirit called all the birds to the great council. From near and far they came. The sky was filled with flying birds. The trees and bushes bent to the earth under the weight of so many. On the great council rock sat the good spirit. He waited until all the birds had perched and had become quiet. The good spirit spoke. He asked the birds if they would like to have songs, songs such as the people sang. With one accord, the birds all chirped, Yes, yes! Very well, said the good spirit. Tomorrow, when the sun rises in the east, 
you are all to fly up to the sky. You are to fly as high as you can. When you can fly no higher, you will find your song. That bird who flies the highest will have the most beautiful song of all the birds. Saying these words, the good spirit vanished. Ooh. Well, who flies the highest? You know. Next morning, long before sunrise, the birds were ready. There were birds everywhere. The earth was covered with them. There was great excitement. However, one little bird was very unhappy. He was the little brown thrush. Perched beside him was the great eagle. As the little bird gazed at the eagle, he thought, What chance have I to compete with this great bird? I am so little, and the eagle is so large. I will never be able to fly as high as he. As he was thus thinking, an idea entered his mind. Eagle is so excited that he will not notice me. With this thought in mind, the little brown bird flew like a flash to the eagle's head and quickly hid under his feathers. The great eagle was so excited that he did not notice the little thrush. With my great wings, I will surely win, thought he. The sun finally looked over the eastern hill. With a great roar of wings, the many birds took off. The air was so full of flying birds that for a time the sky was dark. Their bodies covered the face of the sun. For a long time, the birds flew upward. Finally, the smaller, weaker birds began to tire. The hummingbird was the first to give up. His little wings beat the air so hard that to this day, one can, if one listens, hear his humming wings. His little squeaky call says, wait, wait for me. A very plain song. The fat cowbird was the next to give up. (laughs) what's a fat cowbird i don't know i want one i'm gonna google it in a minute you keep going as he floated down he listened and heard his song a very common song other birds weakened and while flying earthward listened and learned their songs at last the sun was at the end of the earth the night sky began to darken the earth by this time there were only a few birds left they were the larger stronger winged birds the eagle the hawk buzzard, and loon. All night, the birds flew ever up. When the sun rose next morning, only the eagle, chief of all birds, was left. He was still going strong. Yeah. When the sun was halfway to the sky, he began to tire. Finally, with a look of triumph, for there were no other birds in sight, the tired eagle began to soar earthward. The little thrush riding under the feathers of the great eagle had been asleep all this time. Uh When the eagle started back to earth, little thrush awoke. He hopped off the eagle's head and began to fly upward. Eagle saw him go and glared with anger at him, but was powerless to stop him as he was completely exhausted. The little thrush flew up and up. He soon came to the hole in the sky. He found himself in a beautiful country, the happy hunting grounds. As he entered the spirit world, he heard a beautiful song. He stayed in heaven a while learning this song. When he learned it completely, he left the land of happy spirits and flew back towards earth. Thrush could hardly wait to reach the earth. He was so anxious to show off his beautiful song. As Thrush neared the earth, he glanced down at the council rock. There sat all the birds, and on the council rock, glaring up at him, was Aquex, the eagle. All the birds were silent. 
as they waited for Thresh to light on the council ground. Suddenly, the feeling of glory left the little Thresh and he felt ashamed. He knew that he had cheated to get his beautiful song. He also feared Aquex, who might get even with him for stealing a free ride. He flew in silence to the deep woods and in shame with dragging heart hid under the branches of the largest tree. He was so ashamed that he wanted no one to see him. There you will find him today. Never does the hermit thrush come out in the open. He is still ashamed because he cheated. Sometimes, however, he cannot restrain himself and he must sing his beautiful song. When he does this, the other birds cease their singing. Well, they know that the song of the hermit thrush, the song from heaven, will make their song sound very weak. That is why hermit thrush is so shy. That is why his song is the most beautiful song of all the birds. That is why this spirit song causes the sun to shine in the hearts of the Indian people who hear it as they go into the dark forest. Oh, I know. It's like, <laughs> it's happy and sad. It's and both. Yeah. But I liked that. Had a lot of lessons and taught a lot of history. Hermit thrush birds are really cute. They look like little sparrows with yes. long legs. Mm-hmm. Um, cowbirds are not particularly fat. Okay. <laughs> It's just like a black bird with a brown head. Okay. But I'd like to imagine a very fat one. Yeah. So if anyone finds a picture, please post it. <laughs> um, so the ending of this, uh, there's like a little uh, a learning piece to it. So it says mm-hmm. that the old Six Nations people told this story to their children to teach them to be honest and that it does not pay to cheat. Okay. I see that. Mm-hmm. Poor little thrush hiding forever. I know. Forever. Forever. After a little while, we could let him come out. I don't know. All right. He laid in his bed. Pretty cute. hmm <laughs> <laughs> So my other story is from the Inuit tribes. So they have, um, they have a lot of fun mythology, and one of their stories is about Sedna, who is the goddess of the sea. Yes. I'll, oh, I read this story because I talked about Pana. Okay. In the opening, mm-hmm. who is the goddess that shepherds, soul, shepherds souls from earth to the upper world and then takes care of them there for a mm-hmm. while before they come back down. Nice. And are reincarnated. Yeah. So Sedna was very popular. Oh, so I thought I would wild. It is wild. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> They're all, there's so many nice pieces, but they're, mm-hmm. a lot of these stories, the dads are just terrible. Oh, her and, origin story is, yeah, oh no. Um, and I read a lot of uh, stories from all over, and every one of them, it's like a really sweet dad, but then something at the end, you're just Whoops. like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Once there was a young woman named Sedna. She lived in the Arctic with her mother and father. She loved her mother and father very much and was very content. Her father was a skilled hunter, so he provided very well for his family. Sedna had plenty of food and warm furs to wear. She liked the comfort of her parents' home and refused to marry. Many Inuit men desired Sedna for a wife and asked her parents for permission to marry her. But Sedna refused them all. Even when her parents insisted it was time for her to marry, she refused to follow tradition and obey them. This continued for quite some time until one particular Inuk came to the visit Sedna. This man promised Sedna that he would provide her with plenty of food to eat and furs for clothes and blankets. Sedna agreed to marry him. After that, they were man and wife. He took her away to his island. 
When they were alone on the island, he revealed to her that he was not a man at all, but a bird <gasps> dressed up as a man. Get out of here. I would be shocked, Sedna was furious. But she was trapped and had to make the best of it. He, of course, was not a good hunter and could not provide her with meat and furs. All the birdman could catch was fish. Sedna got very tired Just of eating. Just a freaking bird. Yeah, and she Ugh. got very tired of eating fish every day. Yeah, I get a freaking seagull. I don't want that. I know. Like, I love fish. Yeah, me too. But not every day. It's also not healthy every day. I don't want anything every day. I get mercury poisoning. We're tired of it, too. Yeah. Probably not as much mercury poisoning that back then, but no. yes. <laughs> <laughs> they lived together on the island for a time until Sedna's father decided to come visit. Upon seeing that his daughter was so unhappy and that her husband had lied to her, he killed the birdman. Sedna and her father got into his kayak and set off for home. So it sounds like good. It's like dad, little daddy came and yeah. came to protect his little girl. Mm-hmm. The birdman's friends discovered what they had done and wanted to avenge the birdman's death. They flew above the kayak and flapped their wings very hard. The flapping of their wings resulted in a huge storm. The waves crashed over the small kayak, making it almost impossible to keep the boat upright. Fun little side note here. Mm -hmm. So when researching a lot of these stories, birds uh, do have the symbol for storm, I think. So that's a lot of their stories have to do with storms and stuff. So I thought it was interesting when I read it in here that that's what they created. So in their their approximation, birds would create storms. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. They're flying around, mm-hmm. causing mayhem. Yeah, I think any, like, trickster mm-hmm. uh, birds, like, cause, like, a storm is coming kind of thing. I like that. And then in Canada, obviously, it's, like, snowstorms and crazy things Cold like that. birds, yeah. Yeah. Sedna's father was so frightened that the storm would fill his kayak with water and that he would drown in the icy waters that he threw Sedna overboard. Ugh. He thought that this would get the birds to stop flapping their wings, but it did not. Sedna did not want to be left in the water, so she held tightly to the edge of her father's boat and would not let go. Fearing that she would tip him over, the father cut her fingers off, one joint at a time. From each of her finger joints, different sea creatures were born. They became fish, seals, walruses, and whales. Wow. Sedna sank to the bottom of the ocean and there became a powerful spirit. Her home is now on the ocean floor. If you have ever seen her, you know she has the head and torso of a woman and the tail of a fish. Obviously. Yeah. Sedna now controls all the animals of the sea. The Inuit who rely on these animals want to maintain a good relationship with Sedna so that she will continue to allow her animals to make themselves available to the hunters. Inuit have certain taboos that they must follow to keep Sedna happy. One of these says that when a seal is killed, it must be given a drink of fresh water, not salt water. If the hunters do not catch anything for a long time, the shaman will transform himself into a fish. In this new form, he or she will swim down to the bottom of the ocean to appease Sedna, the sea goddess. The shaman will comb the tangles out of Sedna's hair and put it into braids. This makes her very happy and soothes her anger. I get that. Yeah, if you were like sitting there braiding my hair, Mm -hmm. I probably would chill right out. And perhaps it's because Sedna lost her fingers that she likes to have her hair combed and braided by someone else. When she is happy, she allows her animals to make themselves available to the hunters. Animals do not mind giving themselves up to provide food, 
clothes, and shelter for the Inuit. Aww. Yeah, so that's a little origin story of Sedna. It's funny. That's one that I came across when I was researching Pana because Pana is like the woman above and yes. Sedna is one of the women below because she's of the sea. And it's also a fun coincidence because um, Celtic, like Irish-Scottish folklore, has creatures called selkies. Yes. Which are um, women who can shed their skin and transform into a seal. Mm. So. Cute. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds not terrifying at all. I feel like I transform <laughs> into a seal every winter. <laughs> Just little paddles. Yeah, like meh. She must have had, like, cute, chubby little fingers to make walruses and whales and seals. I know. What were those fingers like? Adorable. Long and chubby. Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) Sausage finger. (laughs) Better than salad fingers. True. (laughs) Well, those were lovely. That did make me feel better for a minute. I know. I forgot why we were here, and now I'm like, oh. I'm going to take it back down real hard, but it was nice to have, like, a little minute of a break. And those are lovely moments in, in... cultures that we're talking about. So thank you for that. I guess back to the matter at hand. By 1970, when the first official Highway of Tears case occurred, Canadian Indigenous families were struggling pretty hard. I mean, they still are. On top of that, the level of poverty they were experiencing en masse meant that a lot of them did not have access to a reliable vehicle. So hitchhiking among their culture was incredibly popular, especially with younger girls who had no source of income And if they needed to get somewhere, even if they just were visiting family or going to work, a lot of them got there by hitchhiking. Right. Which we all know is dangerous. Please don't hitchhike. So we have a large remote highway populated by people who are fighting their way through poverty, generational trauma, addiction, and despair. People who the police, government, and mainstream media largely ignore. And then that gives you kind of a real recipe for disaster. The first to go missing was more... This is arguable, but the first you see on a lot of lists is a girl named Tracy Clifton. She was of the Heltsuk Nation. I hope I pronounced that correctly. We're missing a lot of exact information about Tracy, but in a statement made by her mother's cousin, Elizabeth Wilson, during the Truth and Reconciliation hearings, um, she said, quote, Tracy went missing in the early 70s from her home in Prince Rupert. We know Tracy was a teenager. We don't know exactly how old she was. She had an argument with her mom and left home, started walking down the highway, which is, not no, which is now known as the Highway of Tears, and was never seen again. Tracy's family had all been through residential schools. There was a cycle of violence and addiction present there. Um, Elizabeth admitted that her own mother was a severe alcoholic and that she also ran away from home at a young age. We don't know what Tracy ran from or where she thought she would end up, but... She was never seen again, and her disappearance set something in motion, something dangerous. So that's an ambiguous date on that. We don't know. The next chronologically was a white woman named Helen Claire Frost, whose case is pretty well known and actually very interesting. We may, I'd like to cover this actually in a patron extra, which we could do probably this week because I already have the whole story. So Helen went for a walk one day and never came home. She wasn't said to be hitchhiking, though some people argue they may have seen her doing that, but she asked her roommates, like, hey, you want to go for a walk? And they said no. And she went, okay, well, then I'm just going to go alone. Never go alone. Yeah. Don't do it. Helen, who was just 18, had recently also given birth to a baby girl who she had to give up for adoption. Hmm. She left all of her money, valuables, and identification at home when she went on her walk and told her sister she would return shortly. And this was in 1970. 
So there is a very good chance that Helen was actually the first woman to go missing on the Highway of Tears. Mm. And there has been no trace of her found to this day. There are some theories. There are some possible sightings a day after or so. There's even um, been a body discovered that they think could be Helen. But there are two districts wherein the body was like on the border of them. And they neither one of them is claiming ownership of it. So they won't perform any testing to find out if it's her or not. That's bullshit. Isn't that awful? Yes. Yeah. But that's how it's going. They're like, well, she's not ours. She's not ours. Who's responsible for this? We don't know. So they don't know if this woman they found is actually Helen or not. Why can't we just like override this? I don't. I don't know. One would wish. One would hope. So if Helen was the first person to go missing, that would mean that the first Native woman to go missing may have actually been a woman named Jean Virginia Sampere, who went by Ginny, which is so cute. Cute. And she was murdered in 1971. Ginny was just 18 when she disappeared. She was the second youngest in a family of six. Ginny was from a First Nation, specifically Gitsan. Her parents were described as strict and watchful. All the kids worked as soon as they were old enough. Ginny was quiet and shy, and though she was younger than most of them, Ginny would protect and care for her siblings when her father drank too much and became violent. I would be willing to stake my life on the fact that he spent some time in a residential school. It's mm -hmm. not noted in the versions I read, but I'm pretty sure that's what we have here. Ginny worked at the Royal Packing Company Salmon Canning Plant in Claxon, and there are other girls who went missing that worked there as well, and planned to move out of her family home with her brother Rod within the next month. So she had, like, plans for independence. Ginny also had a boyfriend who worked with her at the canning plant. But just a few days before Ginny went missing, he went missing himself. Oh. Mm -hmm. On October 14, 1971, Ginny's brother Rod's wife, Violet, testified that she saw Ginny at Ginny's mother's house. Violet said that Ginny's mother came home and went into the kitchen. Soon after, Ginny came out of the kitchen and looked like she was crying. Ginny was avoiding eye contact with Violet, though. Violet tried to ask what was wrong, but Ginny wouldn't answer, and she just went straight to the door, opened it up, and walked out. Violet tried to get Ginny to come back. She called after her and ran after her, but her mother-in-law stopped her, saying she'll come back. She did not come back. Violet said this was between 10 and 11 p.m., which is too late to be just walking away from your house. Ginny's cousin Alvin reported that he had met up with Ginny, found her, like, walking around, and walked with her for a while down Highway 16, thinking that she was just headed to a local store. I think it was like over railroad tracks or something. Mm. He's like, oh, there's a store there. That's probably where she's going. Why else would she be walking around at that hour of the night? And then at one point in their walk, he decided that he, it's unclear which one he wanted. He either wanted to get a jacket or he wanted to get his bike so they could go faster. And so he said he was going to go get that thing and then catch up with Ginny at the store once he got the thing. But when Alvin returned, thinking he was going to find Ginny on his way, she was nowhere in sight. Ginny did not return home that night, and the next morning, her mother reported her missing to the Gitsagukla Indian Band office in Gitsagukla because often Native people were expected to deal with their own crimes. She didn't right. go to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. She went to her band's office, even though the Royal Canadian Mounted Police should definitely be taking care of this shit. Mm -hmm. Someone at the band, band's office mistakenly said that they had to wait a certain amount of time before reporting the disappearance to the RCMP. Guys, you, you don't have to wait. You have to remember this. American fiends, Canada fiends, no waiting. Go right to the damn cops or horse cops or whatever you have. Just go to mm -hmm. them. So the 
Men in the Gitsagukla Indian band waited for a little while. They went and talked to Ginny's siblings. They talked to her friends. And when none of them had any answers, they then called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. On October 16th, the RCMP took a missing persons report from Sam Pear's mother. The RCMP checked with Ginny's sisters and her other families, stuff that the Gitsagukla band had already done, and confirmed that no one had made contact with her since she was last seen by Alvin. Now, this is common. A lot of times the RCMP will get into a case and then they will just redo everything that has already been done, effectively wasting days of an investigation, Mm -hmm. which is infuriating. The police never found any leads or further information that was released to the public. But a few days after her disappearance, Ginny's boyfriend's body was found. He had drowned in the Skeena River. Oh. Yeah, and there's no, like, why or how he drowned. Just that he drowned. I can't even find his name. Wow. Yeah. The RCMP reported to Ginny's brother, Rod, that the case was closed in 1985, citing a report from the Gitsagukla band chief counselor in 1971 that Ginny had drowned an assertion for which there was absolutely no evidence. Like, he was like, she drowned. Right, well, but that was why? just... Why? The boyfriend drowned. We don't have any proof of her. Yeah. The case was subsequently reopened because her family complained. Of mm. course they did. The RCMP also took DNA samples from Ginny's siblings in around the 2006 era, suspecting she may have ended up on serial killer Willie Picton's murder form. We're going to cover Willie Picton. Other podcasts have color- covered Willie Picton. It is... a awful case, but is inextricably linked to missing Canadian, uh, missing Canadian Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. So we'll get to Willie soon. I'm going to, I'm going to hate it real hard, but we will. At one point, Rod claimed that he saw part of the RCMP's file on Ginny, which indicated that a man named Kenny Russell saw her footprints next to the river, leading him to assume that she went in the river and never came out. Who fucks Kenny Russell? What does he know? Right. Rod asked for a copy of the file, but the RCMP refused. Oh. Mm-hmm. For eight days after Ginny went missing, police and community members searched for her. The village initiated the search, and then the RCMP joined in later. Is there going to be a, a lot of files that are being refused to, like, be given? I don't talk about all of them, but yes, that is huge because they are all still technically open files. The police will not give any of them to the families. Okay. So, unless that's already been, like, closed or solved in some way. It's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. They know very little about their loved ones that disappeared. And again, the village started searching, and then the police jumped on board after they started. The search covered a wide span and went on for days, but they had never found anything. And 50 years later, Ginny is still missing. So the first homicide on the Highway of Tears was that of 14-year-old Monica Ignis, who was last seen at 11 p.m. on December 13, 1974, in Thornhill. She was seen walking home, well, or in the direction of her home. They assume that's where she was going. Where else would she be going at 11 p.m.? And she was alone. And this is the last time anyone saw her alive. Four months later, they also don't say who saw her. Right. Somebody saw her. Four months later, on April 6, 1975, Monica's body was found in a gravel pit in a densely forested area east of Terrace, near Selgor Forest Service Road. And Terrace, as I said, is a town that has more than one entry on this list. Two witnesses reported seeing a car pulled over on the side of the road the night Monica vanished. Those witnesses said they saw a man with a passenger who looked like she was a girl inside the vehicle. 
Medical examiners later determined that Monica had been strangled, which is a pretty violent, prolonged, and personal way to kill somebody. And it's usually associated with someone who knew the person or someone who was pretty angry or both. Monica had been wearing a blue wool duffel coat with wooden toggles for buttons and brown wallaby-style shoes. Investigators say she was also wearing blue socks, but only one sock was found at the crime scene. Monica's murder remains unsolved. Despite all of the unsolved disappearances and murders on Highway 16, there have also been a number of them with resolutions. Resolutions that include, but are not limited to, three serial killers and a suspected fourth, a double murder-suicide, a man who liked to speed down the highway hitting Native people with his truck. His name is Richard Reedcop, and he was never arrested. His Highway of Tears victim, 21-year-old Corrine Thomas, was also eight months pregnant at the time of her death. What a dick. Yep. Richard what? Reedcop, R-E-D-E-K-O-P. And they are, there are local people that said that, like, this is something he, like, did. He, like, tried to purposefully hit Native people with his car and Corrine's family said the same thing. They said, like, I think that our daughter was murdered. And the RCMP was like, well, this was an accident in traffic. She was hit walking down the side of the road by a car. Ew. Mm-hmm. He's gross. He's very gross. There was also a devastating house fire that was a suspected arson and a lot of men who got very, very rapey and murdered women. But where shall I start? Well, as I said, we can't get all of them. I bet you're stuck on the three serial killers, though, right? Three. Yeah. Serial killers, three. Maybe four. Maybe four, yeah. Rightfully so. And I said that way too casually, so we'll start there. In 1981, Edward Dennis Isaac was the first confirmed serial killer to strike on the Highway of Tears. But shockingly, or not shockingly, there is little to no information on Edward other than what happened to his three Highway of Tears victims and the fact that he is currently serving a life sentence for their murders. We can't even find so much as a picture of him. There's nothing on this guy. Wow. Yeah. And we can only assume maybe it's because of the people he killed. Mm -hmm. On October 11th, 1981, 36-year-old Mary Jean Kovacs's nude body was found in a watery ditch 40 kilometers east of Prince George. Police said she died from a 22 caliber, caliber bullet wound to her head. Autopsy reports show she had four gunshot wounds to the head. Jean was last seen alive at about 1.30 a.m. on October 10, 1981, at the intersection of Old Caribou Highway and Highway 16 East. Jean was a First Nations woman, by the way. Her body was found the next day by a man gathering firewood near Purden Lake. Hmm. On November 14, 1981, 13-year-old Rose Witha Fushbichler, I think, I'm so sorry, that one ties me up every time. Roswitha was reported missing at 6.45 p.m. She had last spoken to a friend at 2 a.m. that morning, and after that, no one heard from her. Roswitha's body was found a week later in a wooded area north of Prince George at 9.25 a.m. on November 21, 1981. Roswitha's body was found naked with a penetrating stab wound to the heart, and her genitals had been slashed and mutilated. I will remind you all that this is a 13-year-old girl. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It was later discovered that Edward Isaac had picked her up hitchhiking and claimed he killed her to, quote, see what it felt like. Oh, ugh. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yep. 
Finally, on August 16, 1982, 15-year-old Nina Marie Joseph's nude body was found in Freeman Park with a cord from her jacket around her neck. Just like Rose Witha, her body had been stripped naked, she had been stabbed, and her genitals were mutilated. Then her body was dumped. On February 7, 1986, Edward Dennis Isaac was arrested in Fort James and charged with the murder of Nina Joseph. And in June of that year, he was convicted of manslaughter. But thanks only to the testimony of his girlfriend, who told the court that she helped him dispose of 15-year-old Nina's body. Oh, my God. (sighs) After that conviction, the two others followed. Edward Dennis Isaac was convicted of manslaughter in connection to the death of Rosewitha and sentenced on May 11, 1987 to life in prison with no chance of parole for 15 years. And in February of 1988, he was charged with the murder of Jean Mary Kovacs. He is currently incarcerated in a Canadian prison, which I imagine is a little more polite than ours, but really hates Native people. Yeah. Then we have our third serial killer, a man named Bobby Jack Fowler, who is suspected or a person of interest in at least 16 murders in British Columbia and Oregon dating as far back as 1969. Bobby Jack was a transient construction worker who is known to have traveled across roads in North America, and he basically just drove around nomadically in North America to places like British Columbia, Florida, Iowa, Louisiana, Texas, Oregon, South Carolina, Arizona, Tennessee, and Washington State, which is a terrifyingly large reach for somebody who tended to kill women everywhere he went. During his travels, he developed an extensive criminal record, shock surprise, and committed several violent crimes. He was um, an alcoholic and addicted to amphetamines and methamphetamines. Bobby Jack had a criminal record that included attempted murder, sexual assault, and firearms offenses. He was a pretty scary guy. Mm -hmm. In 1969, he was charged with murdering a man and woman in Texas but was only convicted of discharging his firearm within the city limits. Don't know how that happened, like how that was what ended up happening. But Bobby Jack also spent time in a Tennessee prison for sexual assault and attempted murder because, in the words of the investigator, he, quote, tied a woman up, beat the hell out of her with her own belt, covered her with brush, and left her to die. Oh, my God. Which sounds an awful lot like a lot of the Highway of Tears scenarios. Yeah. Bobby Jack traveled far and wide, and he was usually in a beat-up old car. He frequently picked up hitchhikers. He spent a lot of time in bars and motels. He didn't really have a home base. Bobby Mm -hmm. Jack was a total nomad, just went wherever he could kind of kill people and hang out for a while. Bobby Jack believed that the women he came in contact with while they were hitchhiking and hanging out in bars wanted to be sexually assaulted. Ugh. That's why they were hitchhiking, of course. Right. A couple screws loose there. Mm-hmm. Bobby Jack was suspected under the focus of RCMP's Epana project, which we're going to get to in one second. Bobby Jack's DNA was found on the body of Colleen McMillan, a 16-year-old girl who disappeared while hitchhiking on the Highway of Tears in 1973. Her body was found about 46 kilometers south of where she was last seen. Um, And I think Bobby Jack's DNA was found as a match to her body a great many years later. Okay. Bobby Jack is also strongly suspected to have killed both Gail Ways and Pamela Darrington in 1973, both sometimes listed as Highway of Tears victims, 
19-year-old Gail Ways um, had her nude decomposing body discovered in a water-filled ditch on April 6, 1974. Um, she had also disappeared while hitchhiking and was never seen again. Pamela Darrington's remains were located on November in 1973. She was also someone who left a bar and then never came home. So this is all the same year, like around the same time? Yes, that's okay. why they think that Bobby Jack is responsible for all mm -hmm. of these. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police believe that Bobby Jack may also kill, have killed as many as 10 other victims, possibly as many as 20. Mm -hmm. Potential Canadian victims include a bunch of people along the Highway of Tears. However, many of these murders that they suspect him of also occurred after Bobby Jack was imprisoned in 1996. So it's pretty hard to kill people from prison. Right. I wish there was more we could have heard from Bobby Jack, perhaps more confessions, maybe the location of some of the missing girls, an explanation, anything. But alas, that's not going to happen. Bobby Jack Fowler died in prison of lung cancer during a 16-year sentence following conviction for rape, kidnapping, and attempted rape in Newport, Oregon in 1996, and his body was cremated. Mm. Now, it would be very convenient if we could place like 20 of them on Bobby Jack Fowler, it'd be yeah. great. It's just not super logical. Yeah. But I think Canadian authorities were like, okay, well, we could give all of these women this name and be done. Yeah. Which is what it seems like to me. I guess the hard part is, is that if his DNA, so it was his DNA though, not like his semen or something that was It found. just says DNA. It so was probably know. semen. Okay. Because I guess that's what's frustrating with some of the other women that were thought to be killed by him, I feel like wouldn't they also have found his DNA or semen on or in them? Uh, yeah, but who knows how much of their bodies they have left at this point. That's true, yeah. And I believe it, his DNA was connected with those women in 2012. Okay. So the thing is, like, their DNA must, they must have had evidence filed. Right, that they kept. finally got to. But here's the thing with a lot of these cases. In Canada, after so much time, evidence just gets thrown away. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the evidence in these cases don't remain. Right. A lot of them didn't even have evidence ever collected. So even if his DNA was found on them, I don't think there's any way for us to find out. I gotcha. Okay. Which is unfortunate. Oh, gosh, that's even more frustrating than here when, like, they just won't test things yep. sometimes. They're like, we don't need to. We just know. And you're like, mm -hmm. can you just look at it, please? Yep. <laughs> Lastly, in the serial killer lineup, we have a young, white, and angry man named Cody Allen Lejbikoff, who was born January 21st, 1990. Oh. Oh. Yup. I would like, in some capacity, to cover Cody's case in full. Okay. Because it's nuts. But I will give a brief synopsis here because it is relevant. So, Cody who has the distinction of being Canada's youngest serial killer, was a young white hockey player who showed no propensity for violence in his day-to-day -day life. The cops never gave him a second look. He was popular and well-liked. The Canadian, he used the Canadian social networking site Nexopia with the handle One Country Boy. Oh, no. Cute. It should be noted that Nexopia accepts users as young as 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Hmm. On November 27, 2010, at approximately 9.45 p.m., Royal Canadian Mounted Police Officer Constable Aaron Keller saw Cody pull his truck up onto British Columbia Highway 27 
off of a remote logging road. So he's like gunning it on off this tiny road onto the highway. Cody's 2004 GMC pickup truck was speeding erratically, and on a hunch, the officer decided to pull over the vehicle for a routine traffic stop. This police officer believed that it was pretty weird and suspicious that someone would be on this logging road late at night in frigid cold November, and he was right, but not for the right reasons. Officer Keller, or maybe it's Keeler, K-E-H-L-E-R, either way, suspected that the driver of this truck was poaching in the backwoods. And that's why he signaled him to pull over. So basically, he just thought he was illegally hunting. Right. Which he was, (laughs) in a way. Keller was joined by a second RCMP officer, and both officers said that upon searching Cody's pickup truck, they discovered a multi-tool and a wrench covered in blood, as well as a monkey backpack and a wallet that contained a children's hospital card with the name Lauren Leslie on it. Lauren Leslie is a Highway of Tears victim. When questioned about the blood that was also all over him, Mm -hmm. Cody said that he was poaching and had clubbed a deer to death because, quote, I'm a redneck. That's what we do for fun. Okay. Gross. So I imagine the rest of the shirt tuckers condemn Cody as an institution. Mm -hmm. Also, the truck didn't contain a deer carcass. Right. Where's the deer, Cody? The officers arrested Cody under the Canadian Wildlife Act and called for a conservation officer with animal tracking skills. The warden traced the tire tracks of Cody's vehicle up the road and in the freshly fallen snow, easy to track, until he found footprints that led to the remains of Lauren Dawn Leslie. Hmm. Lauren was just 15 years old when Cody murdered her on November 27, 2010. Lauren was far younger than all of Cody's other victims also, and she allegedly met him online on Nexopia, the website that accepts social networking with people Mm -hmm. as young as 13. Lauren was also legally blind, having one completely blind eye and 50% vision in the other, so she couldn't even see what was coming. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at her picture now. She has these cute little glasses, Mm -hmm. but then like one eye is like a little squinty. Yeah. After Cody's arrest in connection with Lauren's death, he was also linked by DNA analysis to the deaths of Jill Stacy Stuchenko, a 35-year-old mother of six who was last seen on October 9, 2009. She was found dead four days later in a gravel pit on the outskirts of Prince George. And Natasha Lynn Montgomery, a 23-year-old mother of two, last seen on August 31st or early September 1st, 2010. We're not totally sure. Her body has never been found, but her DNA was later found in samples taken in Cody's apartment. Oh. He was also found connected to Cynthia Francis Moss, 35 years old, last seen September 10th, 2010. Her body was found in a Prince George Park the following month. Cynthia died of blunt force trauma to the head and penetrating wounds. She had a hole in her shoulder blade, a broken jaw, and a broken cheekbone, and injuries to her neck consistent with someone stomping on it. Oh. hmm That's aggressive. He oh, was very man. aggressive. Cody is spending his life in the Warkworth Institution in Trent Hills, Ontario. So he is mm. in prison forever. This one's hard. I, like, looked up his photo just to see what he'd look like and uh-huh. to see those, you know, serial killer eyes. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that, like, obviously it's a, it's, you know, it's a photo taken by the police, so everyone's going to look a little Creepy, crazy. Yeah. But 
he doesn't the unsettling thing is I get it. Yep. He doesn't look like that. And and he is he's clearly a teenager, like he's clearly a boy. But I could see how if he's meeting these people, they might not right away know. Yeah. Because these women also look young, even for yeah. their age. So they well, might think that they're... I that don't... he met them all online. Oh, okay. He just met the young girl online. Oh, okay. I think we should cover his whole case, yeah, honestly. It'd be, because... it'd be interesting. Yeah. Because I, I need to know more about him now to be like... And this one, there is more. Okay. So... I'm going to put a pin in Cody. I just gave us an overview because he is a legitimate serial killer that killed mm-hmm. women on the Highway of Tears. But I think there's way more to say about him. Yeah. Yeah. He just comes, some of the photos, he just comes off as like that privilege look, but that mm-hmm. doesn't make you a serial, serial killer. So I want no, to know what, what is happening. He has a lot of affluenza vibes about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll get, we will get to Cody Perhaps on our mainstream, maybe for patrons. Just stop looking. Yeah, I know. It's, it's all of it's rough. Coming in one shy of serial killer status because we know that serial killers have to kill three or more. And this guy only killed two. We have Brian Peter Arp, who was found guilty of killing hitchhiker 18-year-old Marnie Blanchard in 1989 and 38-year-old Teresa Humphrey in 1993. Marnie was last seen at 2 a.m. on November 22, 1989, leaving the Rock Pit Cabaret in Prince George. She was last seen entering a gray Toyota pickup truck with a white canopy outside the Rock Pit Cabaret. The driver had black shoulder-length hair. The truck headed west on 2nd Avenue, and her remains were discovered by cross-country skiers Wilf and May Peckham at about 3 p.m. on December 11, 1989. That'd be a few weeks later. They were discovered on an unmarked road west of Foothills Boulevard. Her remains had been disturbed by animals and were identified later later by dental and x-ray records. So again, not much we can do with those things. Yeah. Teresa was last seen intoxicated outside of a convenience store in Prince George on February 14, 1993. Some men who were witnesses reported giving her a ride but when she couldn't remember where she lived, they just drove her back to the convenience store. I don't know if I can totally blame them for that. They picked her up to give her a ride home and she couldn't tell them where home was. So they were like, I guess we'll just take you back to the store. Right. Her nude, partially frozen body was found on a snowbank about 50 kilometers southwest of Prince George at 2.30 p.m. on February 14th, 1993. So she went missing, I believe it was 11 o'clock that night was the last, the night before was like when they saw her. So I guess the men that picked her up in the car who were the last to see her, it would have been into a.m. Okay. So that's why it's the same day, even though it seems like two. Forensic pathologists who performed the autopsy reported that her death was caused by manual strangulation and then strangulation with a ligature similar to a shoelace that they found at the scene. Again, strangling somebody, that's a lot. Yes. Brian Arp was arrested for Marnie's murder, actually, shortly, af- shortly after she, her body was found. So that's the first girl. The police arrested him and held him, but they couldn't find av- adequate evidence to convict him at the time. But then when he was brought back in for Teresa's murder, things had improved and they were able to use DNA evidence to convict him of both. Mm. So in addition to the known serial killers of the Highway of Tears, Royal Canadian Mounted Police expect 
there is also a few or maybe just one big unknown serial killer operating on the Highway of Tears. In 2005, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police created a task force called Project E-Pana, which is why I spoke of Pana in the opening, with the purpose of solving cases of missing and murdered persons along a section of Highway 16. All victims included in this project must be female, located or gone missing between Prince Rupert, British Columbia, and Prince George, British Columbia, dubbed the Highway of Tears. The task force was originally created in order to investigate the unsolved murders and disappearances along the Highway of Tears and specifically to determine whether a serial killer or serial killers was continuing to operate in that area. Hmm. In 2006, the task force took ownership of nine investigations, but then in 2007, the number of cases doubled from nine to 18. The criteria for case selection was changed around this time to more precisely define EPANA victims. So EPANA is also looking for 13 murders and five disappearances, ranging in date from specifically 1969 to 2006. 13 of these 18 victims on the EPANA list were teenagers, and 10 of them are of Indigenous descent. Okay. The following criteria has to be met by a victim in order to be added to the EPANA list. A lot of people don't love this, but that's what it is. One, the victim must be female. Two, the victim was engaged in one or more high-risk behaviors, i.e. behaviors that would tend to place them in the control of strangers in isolated environments without witnesses, like outside the sight and earshot of bystanders, so hitchhiking and stuff. Easy avenues or escape or sources of assistance. So they'd be out of like, I said a parenthesis, but they would also be a place where it was not easy to escape. And primary examples of this would, like, you know, be hitchhiking alone or sex work. So basically, they want somebody that's out alone on the highway being risky. Mm -hmm. But some of these victims are little girls. So maybe tell me why they were being risky on purpose or whatever. They absolutely were not. See, that's why the language, people don't love the language in this one. Yeah. Three, the victim went missing from or her body was found near Highway 16 from Prince Rupert to Hinton, Highway 97 from Merritt to Fort Nelson or Highway 5 and 24 connecting Valmouth and 100 Mile House. Those are roads in Canada I don't know about. And lastly, the evidence indicates that it is a stranger attack, i.e. no suspect was seen or identifiable and there were no grounds to believe the death was the result of a suicide, misadventure, or domestic violence. So... I'm going to give you a rundown before we finish up of the Ipana cases. So they include 26-year-old Gloria Moody, who was last seen on October 25th, leaving a bar in Williams Lake. Her body was found in the woods at a cattle ranch 10 kilometers away. Medical examiners classified Gloria's death as a homicide, though we have no suspects or evidence. 18-year-old Micheline Pear, who was last seen on Highway 29 or PAR, P-A-R-E, She was last seen on Highway 29 at the gates of Tompkins Ranch, situated between Fort St. John and Hudson's Hope, which is a municipality. Two women who had given her a ride dropped her off at this location. That is the last time anyone ever saw her alive. Her body was found at Hudson's Hope, British Columbia on August 8, 1970. Unsolved. 19-year-old Gail Ways, who we spoke about as a suspected victim of Bobby Jack Fowler. Also 19-year-old Pamela Darrington, who we spoke about as a suspected victim of Bobby Jack Fowler. Also, 16-year-old Colleen McMillan, who was a victim we spoke about in connection to Bobby Jack Fowler. And you see what I mean by they really just want to make this all Bobby Jack Fowler? I wish you could too, but it doesn't look like you really can. 
Um, then they have 14-year-old Monica Ignis, who we spoke about as the first murder um, on the Highway of Tears. 12-year-old Monica Jack, who was last seen riding her bike on May 6, 1978, near Nicola Lake. For 17 years after she disappeared, Monica's fate was totally unknown. But then in June of 1995, forestry workers found skeletal remains in a ravine off a logging road on Swacombe Mountain, about 20 kilometers, 20 miles for the United States, from where Monica's bicycle was found. Dental records and DNA testing confirmed that the identity of the body was Monica Jack. And this case was actually solved. Gary Taylor Handlin was charged on October 22, 2018 for the murders of Monica Jack and 11-year-old Catherine Mary Herbert. On January 18, 2019, Gary Handlin was convicted of the first-degree murder of Monica Jack. So that one's solved. Then we have 33-year-old Maureen Mosey, who was believed to be hitchhiking from Salmon Arms to Kamloops in the British Columbia interior when she was last seen on May 8, 1981. Her body was found the next day by a woman walking her dog along the road Ugh, off the Trans-Canada Highway, about 16 kilometers, 9.9 miles for the United States, east of Kamloops. She had been severely beaten. Lady walking her dog just found her. Mm. Then we have 16-year-old Shelly Ann Bascu, who went missing in 1983. Several days after disappearing, personal items, including clothing and blood droplets matching her blood type, were found near the Athabasca River. Next is 24-year-old Alberta Gail Williams, who I do not like to add to this list because her family doesn't want her on it. Mm. They believe a family member is responsible for Alberta's death, which goes against the restrictions of Ipana, um, but the RCMP has yet to prove it, and so they want to explore other possibilities. Oh, that's frustrating. And it would seem that they do have adequate evidence to explore this family member and it's just not really being done so aggressively. So, oh, that's so frustrating. Alberta's evidence is some of the evidence that was destroyed. Oh. Yeah. Okay. The, that's so frustrating because it's like, it's like you want this highway of tears story to get out there and help find women and save them. Yeah. And then it's also being used to like mm -hmm. silence a whole other family. Exactly. That's so frustrating. And I don't think that's just <laughs> happening one time. I think that may be the right. case with other cases. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, can we ever do something right? I just... Well, if you want to hear more about Alberta's case, um, Connie Walker's podcast, the first missing and murdered podcast, is about Alberta. Okay. And it is eye-opening. I think you should all listen to it. Absolutely. Um, but in short, Alberta went missing on August 25th, 1989, and her body was found on September 25th, about 37 kilometers, 23 miles for the United States, east of Prince Rupert, British Columbia, near Tai Overpass. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted, which is putting it mildly. Okay. Her body was in horrible condition and naked from, like, the chest down. Yeah, Alberta's case is infuriating because she was last seen at a party with a family member and there is so much tying her to a specific location and a specific set of people. And it's just like not going past a certain point. And it's so frustrating to watch that because her family truly believes they know exactly what happened. Yeah. And there's just no justice is happening for her. Huh. 
And it's frustrating, too, because if a whole family is condemning this one person, yeah. shouldn't that still be looked at? Yeah. Like, what? what's so bad and about the police, this person? Yeah, the police detective is actually the person who wrote to Connie to cover this case. There's a, okay. one RCMP detective that's like, I think it's this guy and we need to talk about it. Okay. And he did that, like, totally against the rules. The rest of the RCMP is like, you can't talk about an active investigation. This isn't okay. It's so frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, this is the case that made me want to cover this Mm. because I listened to it and thought, God, there are so many others just like this. And um, Connie Walker's second podcast about um, Cleo Semagnus is a different topic. It's not Highway of Tears, but it is the same realm and it is unbelievably illuminating. Mm -hmm. I really can't urge you guys to listen to them both enough. So we'll move on from Alberta now. 16-year-old Delphine Nicole, who vanished on June 13th, 1990, is also on the list. Um, She, sorry, 15-year-old Delphine Nicole. She was hitchhiking east from the town of Smithers, British Columbia, and never seen again. Mm. 16-year-old Ramona Wilson was also hitchhiking from Smithers to attend a dance and stay with her friends in Hazleton, British Columbia on June 1st, 1994. Ramona's remains were found in April of 1995 north of Yelich Road near the Smithers Airport. Several items were in a small organized pile a few feet away from the body. Other objects nearby include a half-buried small section of rope, three interlocking nylon ties, and a small pink brass knuckles type water pistol. Okay, sounds like there's a lot going on there too. 15-year-old Roxana Thiara went missing in Prince George, on the July long weekend in 19, on a July long weekend in 1994. I guess the, the long weekend is a thing maybe for like people who are working there. They have like a three-day weekend. Mm-hmm. She had worked as a prostitute, sex worker. This is the words in the legal documents. So that's what we say. And told a friend that she was going to go out with a customer. She walked around the corner of a building and that was it. Nobody ever saw her again. Her body was found August 17th, 1994 in the brush along Highway 16, she knew fellow victim Alicia Germain, which brings us to 15-year-old Alicia Leah Germain, who was found murdered on December 9th, 1994, behind Haldy Road Elementary School off Highway 16 West, outside of Prince George. Leah was stabbed to death. Then we have 19-year-old Lana Derrick, who was last seen in October of 1995 at a service station in Thornhill, One rumor said she got into a car with two unidentified men, but that's only one rumor and we have no proof. No trace of Lana has been found. Next, we have 24-year-old Nicole Hoare, who was last seen hitchhiking to Smithers. Originally, she was from Red Deer, Alberta. Nicole was last seen at a gas station at 5952 Gautier Road, west of Prince George, on June 21st, 2002, at approximately, well, this is military time, 1450, talking to a 30-ish year old white guy, so really that could be anything, in an orange car. Police investigated convicted murderer Leland Vincent Schweitzer and searched his property, but did not find any human remains, and that was good enough for them. Hmm. 22-year-old Tamara Lynn Chapman, I think I said Chipman in the opening, I think it was a typo, I'm so sorry, it's Chapman, who was last seen in Prince Rupert on September 25th, 2005, while hitchhiking, again, east on Highway 16 near the Industrial Park, and never seen again. No trace of Tamara has ever been found. And last, we have 14-year-old Isla Sarek Auger, 
whose body was found February 10th, 2006, shortly after she went missing on February 2nd, 2006. A motorist found Isla in a ditch on Highway 16 near Tabor Mountain, nearly 20 kilometers, 12 miles for the United States, east of Prince George. All investigations are currently open. Wow. Mm -hmm. I could go on, but this would be a seven-hour podcast. Right. And I think we all see where this is going. The ghosts of missing and murdered women simply pile up on the sides of Highway 16. And they've done so for years and years. And it's still happening. I mean, the last case on this list is 2021. Mm -hmm. And authorities really are doing and seem to have done the bare minimum to solve these cases. And I don't really have an ending here either. I mean, the mainstream media seems to have ignored them. I hadn't heard of any of them, really. Yeah. I mean, we're not in Canada, so there is that. Our news may not carry. I wish I could say more was done. Um, Because there are so many First Nations communities and municipalities that border the Highway of Tears that are plagued with poverty and there is no public transportation, the authorities and government made the link that this is what caused them to hitchhike and that's why so many of them went missing. And they did, a lot of them did go missing hitchhiking, but I don't think that's the sole cause. So to remedy this portion of it, in June of 2016, Transportation Minister Todd Stone announced that as a result of a collaboration across local communities, a bus service would become available along Highway 16. The project will be joint funded by the federal government and the government of British Columbia, which is great, but I don't think it's free. So if you can't afford anything, I don't know if you're buying a bus ticket. Right. Yeah, that's frustrating Mm -hmm. still. And what about the people that just, like, needed to go for a walk? Yeah, they weren't going <laughs> anywhere. They, a bus wouldn't have solved their problems. In June of 2017, a subsidized transit service began operating on alternating days along 400 kilometers between Prince George and Bird's Lake. So that's another, like, mm-hmm. transportation thing that they added. Oh, and cell phone towers have also been added along the highway because, by the way, there was no cell phone service on most of it. Right. So in modern times, even if they were going to try to call for help, they simply couldn't. Mm-hmm. And that's about all we have in the way of fixing this. Yeah. I mean, the other part is it, it sounds like for some of them it was home lives, like them needing to yes. just get out and, mm-hmm. you know— I. And not even saying that they were running away, but just that idea of like, I'm just, you know, had a really frustrating conversation Mm -hmm. and they just had to go for a walk. And then that kind of thing happened. They weren't traveling long. Even the younger girls having to walk to get to places because they didn't have reliable transportation for themselves, which then maybe some of that. Maybe the bus will help. I mean, I'm not saying it's not going to help at all. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying if part of your concerns is that these communities are so poverty-stricken that they can't afford transportation. Transportation you have to pay for. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they forgot to mention that the bus was free. That would be great if that was the case. Who knows? But thankfully, people are speaking out now. Mm -hmm. People are telling their stories and saying the names of the missing and dead. The Truth and Reconciliation hearings saw a lot of the families of victims on the Highway of Tears speaking out. And trying to see some kind of, compensation is a terrible word for it, but some sort of something for what they had been through. But that's, that's pretty much all that's being done because the plague of indigenous, missing and dead indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people is still happening and it needs to stop. 
And I know that this story is only one thread in a horrifying knot of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada and the United States, but I've pulled it, and now I can't stop. So in the future, we will cover Vancouver's missing women, which is 40-some women. Wow. All Indigenous. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will cover the cultural genocide of American and Canadian First Nation children that took place in residential schools. This will also cover a phenomenon called the 60s scoop, which sounds like a fun dance, but isn't. It's a phrase I just learned and stayed up three nights in a row reading about. And that was when the government came in and just took children to be adopted by yeah. white families. It's horrifying. We will also cover Robert Willie Picton, as I mentioned before, which is a horrifying case that you can find a lot of other places. However, it's not usually linked to other missing and murdered indigenous women's stories, which is bizarre to me because it certainly is. A lot of these women that are being investigated both in Vancouver and on the Highway of Tears are suspected to have possibly been victims of Willie Pictons. And he just killed so many women mm. because he had pigs. Oh. Yep. Yeah. So. We will cover Willie, I promise, because it does belong in conjunction with the other stories. Yeah, that one leaves me speechless every time. I can't. It's so many. He killed so many women. So we'll cover that and several other pieces of the horrifying history that was and really is a sugar-coated centuries-long eugenics-propelled genocide that is still happening today. This was just an introduction. Lastly, before we sew this up, May 5th is Red Dress Day. Inspired by the work of Métis artist Jamie Black, that would go on to speak at the Red Dress Project, this day draws attention to the more than 1,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. That's right, more than 1,000. The project was started in 2010 after Jamie displayed an installation at the University of Winnipeg that included a series of empty red dresses hung to honor and symbolize the lost lives of Indigenous women at the hands of violence. On this day, participants are encouraged to display empty red dresses in public spaces or wear red dresses to show support for the lives of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Additional activities taking place on that day include marches, memorials, and walks across Canada. Installations of red dresses are displayed in museums, university campuses, and exhibits. In honor of this project and all the Indigenous women who have been lost, a red dress is hung in our studio all week and will stay there until the 6th of May. And that's it. Oh, thank you, Holly. Yeah. Toast. Toast. I, I you can't really get specific. There's so many. Tell, tell all the all women. Of them. I know. Keep that moment of silence, I guess. So to all the women who have gone missing on the Highway of Tears, and if we took a walk, never imagining it might be our last, we, we would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. Tracy Clifton. Helen Claire Frost, Jean Virginia Ginny Samper, Monica Ignis, Corinne Thomas, Mary Jane Hill, Jean Mary Kovacs, 
Roswitha Fushbischler, Nina Marie Joseph, Doreen Jack, Alberta Gail Williams, Cecilia Ann Nicall, Marnie Blanchard, Kimberly Dumais, Helga Roshan, Sherry Roshan, Pauline Roshan, Delphine Ann Camelia Nicall, Donna Mae Charlie, Maureen Sullivan, Teresa Umphrey, Ramota Lisa Wilson, Roxanne Thiara, Alicia Leah Germain, Sheila Faye Kinnequan, Christine Kinnequan, Lana Derrick, Hazel White, Wendy Ann Twist Rat, Linda Geraldine Lafranc, Amanda Jean Simpson, Monica McKay, Tracy Nadine Jack Wolf, Savannah Hall, Ada Elaine Brown, Leah Marie Faulkner, Nicole Hoare, Kayla Rose McKay, Helena Jack, Barbara Ann Joseph, Margaret Newski, Melanie Dawn Brown, Mary Madeline George, Tamara Lynn Chipman, Candice Marie Kalmakoff, Aaliyah Katharina Sarek Auger, Stephanie Joy Donnelly, Beverly Warbrick, Bonnie Marie Joseph, Brittany Geis, Jill Stacy Stuchenko, Emily Rose McQueen, Natasha Lynn Montgomery, Cynthia Francis, Linda Fryden, Lauren Dawn Leslie, Chastity Charlie, Madison Geraldine Scott, Maria Practicante Rego, Unknown Body Discovered in November of 2011, April Rose Johnson, Tara Leanne Williams, Destiny Ray Tom, Immaculate Mary Basil, Anita Florence Thorne, Shirley Williams, Roberta Marie Sims, Francis Brown, Shauna Lee Sam, Jessica Patrick, Cynthia Martin, Lauren Campbell Fabian, Joy Morris, unknown woman found in her car dead, Jessie Mae Hayward Lines, Crystal Haynes Chambers, Kristen Marion West. <laughs> 